Lawmakers put the 2015 legislative session to bed Wednesday after months of debate on a number of issues. As legislators head back to their home districts, we're taking a look at some of the biggest topics they tackled during this year's session. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we're joined by House Minority Leader Scott Pilaf, Senator Jim Merritt, and our State House reporter Brandon Smith. We'll discuss what the legislators consider this year's biggest changes and what they mean for Hoosiers. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to review the 2015 session of the Indiana General Assembly. We'll be joined in the studio by State House reporter Brandon Smith and also Senator Jim Merritt is here with us. Senator Merritt is the Majority Caucus Chair for the Indiana State Senate, serves as chair of the Utilities Committee, and also on the phone joining us from his office in Indianapolis is Representative Scott Pilath. He is the Minority Leader of the Indiana House of Representatives. If you want to join us on the program, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And we're on Twitter, too. You can find us at Noon Edition. So, all right, so the session's over. I've read numerous uh, press releases from both sides. I've read numerous reports by Brandon Smith and others. And uh, Senator Merritt, I wanted you to evaluate the uh, the pluses and the minuses of this session. Well, it's uh, a very, very productive, successful session. When you talk about uh, our approach was going to be an education session, I think when you talk about almost um, almost half a billion dollars more in, in uh, public education spending and, and uh, a focus on the child and, and teachers, pro-teacher uh, session, I think it was a very successful session. And there are a lot of good things to talk about, including growth in our in our economy, economic development, and uh, uh, giving giving the Pence administration tools to to uh, improve our schools and also grow our economy. Mm-hmm. And I should say, Senator Merritt, of course, is a, a Republican. He represents a majority, and um, Senator or uh, Representative Pilaf is in the minority. Uh, how did you view the session? Well, Bob, here's the thing. Um, the session adjourned, and it fulfilled its one constitutional responsibility to pass a budget. Um, so it, it avoids a failing grade on those grounds, but other than that, it gets the lowest passing grade of a D-. minus. Um, there's simply no way to undo the damage of the RIFRA debacle. 
um, when the historians are writing about the 2015 session. That's going to be uh, front page, top of the fold. And and then we completely went in the wrong direction for Indiana's future prosperity. I mean, we repealed the common construction wage, uh, which has been in place since the 30s. That's going to throw some of our communities into a downward wage spiral. And we haven't addressed some of the basic needs of Indiana. I mean, we have a crumbling infrastructure um, that almost nothing was done with respect to uh, the basics of roads and bridges. And then on the educational issues, you know, we, we continue to go into uncharted territory. I mean, we're, we invested a little bit more, but we have absolutely no idea where the dollars are going because we're, we're now funding four different school systems in Indiana. You've got your traditional public schools, where most of the kids still are. You have your charter schools, your voucher schools, and now your virtual charter schools. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult for the people of Indiana to hold uh, our, our system of education accountable when um, the, the dollars are just sort of flowing to this ethereal plane. So we have a lot of work to do and a lot of damage to undo. Um, like I said, it avoids an F because we did the basics, but beyond that, it's pretty grim. All right. Well, I'm going to turn to Brandon Smith, who's been up at the State House covering this very closely. You know, I'm not going to ask you to pick sides because clearly there are two different views of this. Uh, but I wanted to get your evaluation of the session. Well, I like to work under the theory, and I don't think I'm the only one who does this, uh, who feels like most sessions are defined by one issue. 2012, it was defined in many ways by right to work. 2013 was maybe the Pence tax cut debate. Uh, 2014, certainly HJR 3. Now, lots of other things happen in each of those sessions. But when you think back to them, that's what you remember, or that's what a lot of people remember. And it's hard to get away from this session being the RIFRA session, the Religious Freedom Act Restoration session. Um, that it, it it overshadowed everything else for certainly a couple of weeks. Everybody, uh, even Speaker Bosman, Senator Long, said that yesterday as we were wrapping up the session. Uh, they said for a two-week period, that's the only thing it seemed like they were doing. Um, they feel like it's faded now, and it certainly has, obviously, the controversy around it. But if you think back to 2015 at the State House, uh, the first thing that will pop into people's minds is RIFRA. Okay. Senator Merritt, I wanted to, to have you comment on that. We're not going to spend the whole session on that today because there, there were a lot of other things that happened. But, sure. but you know, you heard both Brandon and Representative Pilath talk about the RIFRA session and damage that it may have done the state. Your comments? Well, <clears throat> I'm an optimistic person, and I'm looking forward rather than backward. And I, I tend not – this is my 25th session, and uh, when we talk about budget sessions in the past, we've talked about budget sessions. But uh, it, it, it was a very difficult session, and and uh, many issues that we're, we're, we're tackling to uh, find positive results are there. But uh, I'll be moving around Indiana a great deal. Uh, this this summer, and what I'll be talking about is education money, uh, funding, and talking about economic development, talking about jobs, talking about talking about public health, and and really reaching out to uh, our our kids and those at, at county fairs and places such as that, and talking about what we want Indiana to be and how we're going to grow the economy. That's what people really want to talk about: is how can we grow the income, how we can grow the amount of available jobs, how we can get high-tech jobs and bring people to Indiana. And as we as we made very clear, Indiana is a very welcoming place, 
and we just have to shout from the balcony about that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to to uh, change the subject to education because you talked about this being the education session. That mm-hmm. was pretty much the idea going in until you know Rifra took uh, some of the the spotlight away. Um, Four hundred seventy four million dollars new mm-hmm. dollars for education. But it's going to be distributed in a little bit different way. Could you talk about that? Well, um, and Representative Pilath did say it, that it is flowing in several different areas, four different areas. But as we all know, kids learn differently. And all four of those areas have constituencies. And, uh, and, and we believe that there ought to be competition in the education, for the one of better work, workplace, in the place there. And uh, we believe that, that all these areas including the virtual schools, uh, demand attention, demand funding. And, and I'm quite comfortable with the fact that when, when you look at results, and we will look at results, the mayor of Indianapolis has closed several charter schools. There, it, there is accountability there, and, and, and these schools have to be accountable, and they have to be, uh, if you're a DRF school, you've got to be a little worried about it. And so um, I think I think I'm quite comfortable with the fact that we have different types of schools because kids learn differently. Okay. Representative Pilath, um, your, uh, I know you have some concerns about, and I saw it in your news conference or your, your press release, some concerns about the way that the school funding is going to be going out. Yeah, there's, there's, I suppose some can tell a happy story, but there's some less happy stories to be told. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, uh, school systems are centerpieces of local communities. And a lot of the communities in Indiana are still coming out on the short end of the stick uh, in the way we distribute school dollars. I mean, in my, my little community of Michigan City up on Lake Michigan, I think we're going into the sixth or seventh straight year of uh, reduced assistance from the state of Indiana. And there's prices to be paid. And, you know, we talk about competition in the in school, and really what's much more needed is cooperation. And we don't have that cooperation right now. Uh, we're pitting communities against each other to fight for, a, you know, the fixed number of school dollars that's available, and there's implications in the classroom finally. You know, we're not getting the basics right now. We're continuing to pursue experiments, and it is becoming difficult to evaluate. I think we agree about accountability, but the fact of the matter is these four different school systems are all funded from the same pot of money, and that makes it difficult for the public to assess um, where we're being successful, where we're falling behind, and it makes it even harder to make sure that every kid in Indiana is going to get a fair shot to learn. And those are the differences that have to be smoothed out. You know, some of the debates of the past we probably shouldn't revisit here, but we do need to get our arms around better um, how we're funding them. And that's going to be a discussion that's going to continue for, for many years now. Brandon? Maybe more than more than the debate over voucher and charter and virtual school funding and, and the increase is great, but uh, I think uh, the count is something like in the new school funding formulas for traditional public schools now, um, I believe 137 schools lose money. Of those, uh, I think 137, most of them, most of them, so I think over 100 of them 
lost that money because they're losing kids. And that's for Republicans, not to put words in your mouth, but that's that's their driving theory. The money should follow the child. So if you're losing students, you're going to lose money. If you're gaining students, you're, you should be gaining money. So that's uh, a change in the funding formula that we saw this session. Um, there's something called the complexity index, which is what drives money towards urban schools because they have the largest population of what's called at-risk poverty students. Um, but they're starting to tinker with that a little more so that the complexity index doesn't drive as much money to the urban schools and is instead driving a little more and said uh, the, the, the formula is driving a little more money towards growing, fast growing suburban schools. Senator Merritt, do you want to uh, respond? To that? So did Brandon put words in your mouth? Well, no, no. It, it, he is correct. We, the Republicans do believe that uh, the funding does follow the student. And uh, there is a complexity. Uh, there are probably three people in the state that actually understand the uh, the school funding formula. And uh, yeah, and, yeah, and uh, and one of them is Ryan Michelin in our caucus. And and uh, we felt as though that that uh, for instance, I represent Hamlin Southeastern Schools, growing, growing, and growing some more. They have had several uh, spurts of of. Uh, of construction, and they continue to do so, and we don't see any end to it. So, so uh, we we do. I do believe, and the Republicans do believe that that the funding should follow the student, and 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 as well as we need to talk more about teacher pay and increasing teacher pay, and and that's another uh, factor out there that we're trying to push that. Well, I wanted to follow up on that just quickly because I think I heard a Brandon Smith report the other day about Hamilton Southeastern being mentioned that was gaining money and I think IPS was losing money. So that's strictly a case of the IPS losing students and Hamilton Southeastern gaining. Is that correct? I, I would think so. Uh, I, but as well as the complexity uh, index helps IPS because it's a to totally different situation but not totally but there there are differences and uh, but but uh, uh, the IPS superintendent is doing a masterful job and and every time you pick up the paper he is working on some sort of new uh, new idea and 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 uh, I have a lot of confidence in him that he's gonna he's gonna get the job done um, well, well yeah. can, can I, sure. I, yeah, ahead, I, I probably need to add something here yeah. because that's uh, you know, money following the child is a, a great-sounding theory. It fits on a bumper sticker very nicely. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is we're creating an environment where the kids with means are able to follow the money. Um, so we're 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 distributing uh, funds to the haves, and then we're leaving a lot of kids behind uh, in our communities. And those happen to be our at-risk kids. And it's a simple fact that when it's a struggle for you to even get to school in the money, it often takes uh, more resources to provide a quality of opportunity for that child. That's, uh, that's something that's been recognized for a long time. We used to have a balanced compromise between the competing um, needs of growing school districts and those school districts with a lot of at-risk kids. We've broken that compromise, and the result is you're going to see some communities continue to uh, struggle against decay, and you're going to see the haves continue to grow. I don't think that that's the type of growth that we want in Indiana. We need to uh, invest in our best and brightest regardless of where they are. 
And that, that's, that's the problem here. And you're, we're seeing it exacerbated once again by this most recent budget. Well, let me, let me remind uh, Representative Pilath that we have 40 out of the 79 charter schools in Indiana, 40 are in Marion County. And so uh, there are, as we've always said, different ways that children learn, and, and, and those schools are outstanding. If, you, if anybody goes to the Tinley School or the Challenge Academy, they would be so impressed on how they're delivering education to our children. All right. Well, while we're on the topic of education, let's talk a little bit about the changing makeup of the State Board of Education. Um, Senator, what, what did you see as the motivations behind some of these changes that are coming in, the wisdom, and, and what's the desired outcome? And, and Scott, when, when <clears throat> Senator Merritt's done, I'd like to have your uh, thoughts on that as well, please. Well, the basis of this being a conversation point in this session was that uh, we believe that the policy that was being placed into the public uh, should be discussed at the state board, and it, it, it state board seemed to be not working correctly. And uh, the superintendent, who who was chairman, still is chairman, and will be chairman for the rest of her term. Uh, it wasn't. We weren't getting the job done of exactly what was going through the legislature and passing and, and being signed by the governor. And so after a session long of discussion and, and conversation and, and uh, just, just lots, of, lots of points in the air, uh, we came down to the fact that, that uh, the, the school board would be its own entity uh, in the way of receiving information so they can be helpful in making decisions along with the superintendent and DOE. And, uh, and, and the discussion point of the, chair, uh, the, the superintendent being the chairman would be the same for the rest of her, her term in, instead of uh, what was introduced originally. So bottom line is, is that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Glenda Ritz is in charge of the board, and uh, we, have, we have given the board some tools to be, um, enable them to do their job. And uh, that's what we were concerned about. So you mentioned, and, and Scott, I'm going to give you a chance, a chance at this, but you mentioned um, until the end of her term that yes. the superintendent will be the head of, of, of that. But is it your hope then that once you get Glenda at the end of her term that you can move uh, to perhaps change that at that time? I can see well, why it would be politically disadvantageous to make a martyr out of Glenda Ritz. Well, well bottom line is is that we heard, and uh, when you hear people and you 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 – you change your opinion a little bit. We want that board to be operational, and in uh, in in the end, uh, allowing uh, Mrs. Ritz to be in charge until the end of her term, and then whoever it wins the next time, it sounds like she wants to run for governor now. Uh, whoever is the next superintendent, uh, that will change. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay, Scott, what's your take on that? Well, when you have too much power and you have a fundamental power imbalance, and one that's uh, out of step with the overall makeup of the state, what you do is you gain the system so you don't uh, have to suffer the inconvenience of an election. And that's what's going on here. I mean, the, the Republicans did not foresee Glenda Ritz being elected. She was a fly in the ointment for many of these educational experiments. So there was sort of this melodrama created around the State Board of Education uh, in order to block her out from making various decisions. Um, this effort was, was simply part of that. I, d I don't think it makes any sense to call it anything other than what it is. 
which is just a realignment of uh, power sources to ensure that some of these educational changes move far forward, regardless of what the ultimate school board says. And the ultimate school board is the voters of Indiana. Uh, we've had electoral oversight of our state's educational policy for a long time. And uh, apparently that became uh, unsavory for some folks, so this change was made so it doesn't happen again. Uh, that's, that's got it. That, those are the types of things that when you have too much power, you start to do. And, uh, you know, I can't say we, did, we didn't tell folks. We told them over and over that they didn't have to do it. And now you're going to have a lot, of, uh, a lot of angry folks, and it simply wasn't necessary. It's really not that difficult. You have a state superintendent. They run uh, the state's educational policy. Then you have an election to, to, for the people to decide whether they did a good job or a bad job. And instead, what we have is now another bureaucracy that's being created around the state board with uh, political muscle behind it and uh, now staff and resources and tax dollars behind it. Just a way of sidestep the Department of Education we already have. Uh, Representative, I have to, to ask, though, I mean, the, the Republicans did make a change in this so that Linda Ritz is able to to fulfill her, you know, she she can finish out her term, and so whoever's elected next time, it could be her again, or it could be a Republican, and in fact, you could have enough people elected that you would be running the state house after the next election. You know, why is it so bad to do this the way they've done it now? Um, you know, I I wrote editorials criticizing the way it was going to be done if she was going to be removed before the end of her term. But what's wrong with what's wrong with making this change at the end of a term? Well, <laughs> that was look. Republican lawmakers were going back to their districts and getting pummeled over the the, the political drama around uh, the Glenda Ritz and the Department of Education, and that was a provision simply put in so you have enough Republican members that would hold their nose in order to to vote for it. Um, but look, either you're committed to the electoral process regarding education or you're not. Now, if you're not, and you think maybe the position ought to be appointed, or you think the governor ought to have control of, over everything, regardless of uh, regardless of who the governor is, then you ought to say that. Um, this really was just a this was a way to, um, I think, pacify some pacify some egos who uh, thought that they were making the educational changes that people wanted, and then the 2012 election came around and they found out that they weren't. All right, we're going to take a short break. We're uh, talking about the 2015 legislative session that just ended. We have Senator Jim Merritt, Republican, in the studio with us. We have Representative uh, Scott Pilath, a Democrat, uh, on the phone with us. And also joining us is Brandon Smith. We're going to hear a lot more from him after the break. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. 
Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. All right, welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We are reviewing the Indiana General Assembly session that just completed. We have uh, State House reporter Brandon Smith uh, from Indiana Public Media and uh, Public Broadcasting. We also have Senator Jim Merritt and Representative Scott Pilath is joining us by phone. If you have uh, questions or uh, have comments, you can give us a call, 855-0811. That's an 812 number, 812-855-0811, or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I, I want to turn to Brandon first, and uh, we understand that Representative Pilath is going to have to uh, get off the, the phone here in about 10 or 15 minutes. We'll let him go first. But, Brandon, you know, we've talked about two big issues that we spent the first half of the show talking about, RIFRA and education. Those weren't the only things that happened. What were some of the other key issues for you? Well, you know, as, as much controversy as there was over RIFRA, as much uh, controversy really there was over some of the uh, State Board of Ed uh, changes, there was no bigger crowd of protesters this session, and it wasn't close. There was no bigger crowd of protesters than over the bill repealing the state's common construction wage, mm -hmm. which is a kind of minimum wage for construction workers on public projects. Um, this is, as uh, Leader Pilath mentioned in his opening, uh, it's, uh, it's a system that's been around for about 80 years, but Republicans haven't liked it for a lot, uh, a lot of that time. And uh, this was finally the effort this year to to repeal it, and they said their point is um, that it's they feel these wages are artif uh, artificially inflated. They they like pointing to a case up in um, Allen County that happened earlier this year. Two projects, one for Allen County, one for Fort Wayne Community Schools. They were uh, the wages were decided on the exact same day, and people doing the exact same job in each of those uh, two projects, the the difference between the wages was about uh, uh, it was more than double. It was more than double the difference between those two wages, and they feel like that's a broken system, and so they decided to repeal it. Now, what the Senate did was they put in, in addition to the repeal, they put in a lot of um, new requirements for contractors on public projects because the fear you heard was if you just get rid of this wage, it's a system that doesn't just decide money in a way. It also decides – it also helps make sure that the companies who are bidding for these projects are using qualified workers. They're usually in state. And so what the Senate did was they put in a lot of new requirements that kind of drive towards that. They have the companies who, who work on public projects have to have training programs in place. They can't pay their workers in cash. They have to e-verify, these sorts of things, as a kind of way to uh, blunt the fears that uh, were, were swirling around repeal of the law. All right. Scott Pilath? Well, <laughs> you know, Indiana's uh, wages and salaries are lagging. I mean, they've been uh, lagging behind in real terms and sometimes in nominal terms for some time. Uh, we see uh, that the new jobs being created in, the, in Indiana are by too high of a proportion poverty wage jobs and minimum wage level jobs. And we continue to see a philosophy that, that deems that the solution to every economic problem is to get people to work for less. Um, we we do have an economic crisis, or certainly a growing one here in Indiana. Uh, we're maybe doing okay f by a few investors, but in the consumer markets, in the in the labor force, 
we're seeing a deterioration of the ability to go out and save and buy things. That's got long-term implications for Indiana. And the repeal of the common construction wage is another example of that. Um, you're going to have uh, uh, out-of-state firms coming in. You're going to see lower wages on construction projects. And the problem there is going to undermine the overall wage markets within those various communities. And you're going to continue to have an exacerbation of Indiana's sluggish wage growth. That, that can't be, and I don't think that's the kind of state we want to have. But that certainly that's the message that's being sent. I think what's unique about this situation is uh, often it was seen as being an attack on, on unions and organized labor that are often involved in these types of projects. But at the same time, they were uh, attacking venerable Indiana employers, uh, longtime construction firms that have been uh, sometimes loyal Republicans and Republican supporters. I think that's what what raises my eyebrows. It's one thing sort of to go after traditional Democratic constituencies. I guess that's that's expected to happen. But in this case, uh, you're going after business leaders in a business model. It doesn't make any sense why their pleas fell on deaf ears as a uh, well, maybe they didn't fall on deaf ears. The repeal barely passed both chambers, but uh, and there was bipartisan opposition to the change. But why it wasn't enough to put a halt to it, um, we're probably going to have to continue to dissect for a while. All right, Senator, your response? You know, Scott's right. Uh, the, we are lagging. The income income growth is lagging in this state. It's probably one of the, one of the uh, items that uh, the gov- Governor Daniels, when he left office, was most unhappy about. That's probably one the, something that he really wanted to grow while he was in office for those eight years. And we have to redouble our efforts. When you talk about common, when the common wage, you're talking about public funds. You're talking about public projects. We have to do our very best to make sure that the public is getting the very best deal. Uh, Scott is correct. Both, there were, there were, there were uh, on both sides of the aisle, there are folks that were against this, and and you had to find a way. And what Brandon said was correct. We we put up a lot of uh, factors into this into this law that that uh, with, in, regarding e-verify and all those situations which the unions did request. And so we tried to navigate uh, needle pen <laughs> thread. Uh, we really tried to get our way through and and uh, get the very best situation for uh, bidding on projects. And, and uh, I was told that one university uh, north of here probably, it could probably save as much as $20 million. And, uh, and so uh, the bottom line is the bottom line. First of all, we do need to in- increase the income in the state and the economic and growth policies that we, that we just uh, put the pen on uh, will help that. We have to help Main Street. We've got a, we've got a regional cities a program that that hopefully will uh, will put a little spur into making sure that people still want to live in small town Indiana, and uh, but the bottom line here is that we 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 believe public funds, public money, do, need to do our very best that we're we're spending it wisely. Hmm. All right. Again, our phone numbers are eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the Bloomington area. And also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Tim is on the phone. Tim's from Greene County. 
Hello. Uh, I'm working in Greene County. Or I live in Bloomington. Okay. And I thought that Wifera was very divisive within the state, polarizing. I work with people on both sides of the issue. But why in the world did the Republicans shut out the Democrats when they were trying to fix it? They met in their own little caucus. Instead of trying to demonstrate to the state a, uh, a spirit of cooperation and unity, instead the Democrats just sat outside and the Republicans decided on their little fix and then tried to spin it to us and saying, oh, it's all fixed. Why was that done? I asked the Republican senator. We're talking about RIFRA? Yes. Yes. Well, well, well first of all, I don't, I don't think we shut out anyone. We, we put together uh, a conference committee. We listened. We, we took our time. We didn't uh, immediately uh, put something together. This took some time, and all sides were, were uh, consulted. We had a very little amount of time. We had a budget to pass. And, and uh, we believe that the clarification of what went on with Re- uh, REFRA satisfied uh, all the groups that had been howling about this. And, and uh, uh, we did take in consideration the loyal opposition's ideas. But my understanding is that they were shut out of the meetings. Okay. Is that not correct? Was it? Um, I think Tim may be referring to, I mean, the Republican caucus came up, finished, I mean, you, the Republican caucus developed the uh, the fix right, right. It, the, okay. both house and senate okay. uh, but but it, it was it was uh, developed out in the open and uh obviously uh, uh the democrats might have had some suggestions that weren't taken but they were consulted scott what was your what was your take on that process well here's the thing i mean clearly a number of of, of mistakes were made in rifra um, I think it's important to look at some of the lessons that we can garner from it. The first is that there's a real economic implication to driving a social agenda. Um, that's why, you know, on my side of the aisle, we continually argue for, look, stay away from the most divisive cultural issues as, most as, you, as best as you can, because it does affect the business community, and it does affect the ability to attract the best and brightest workers to Indiana. And there are pocketbook effects uh, from these types of discussions. So we, we, we have to learn that, and I hope both sides of the aisle uh, have had that sink in. Now, having said that, look, I don't want businesses and conventions pulling out of Indiana either. I mean, we are all in this thing together. And a lot of these debates did take place in public, and I'm, I'm glad that they did. Um, my, my opposition to the fix was not that there was a realization that a fix had to be done. That, that, was, the, that was the right step. My, my problem with the fix is I just thought it was insufficient. Um, after the damage had been done, it was my estimation that you were going to have to finally and decisively give full civil rights protections uh, to the LGBT um, citizens here in Indiana. So people did, without a doubt, feel welcome here in this state. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was laudatory that there was a realization that the, the wrong had to be corrected. Uh, what simply just fell short is the, the understanding of what actually was going to be required. Um, if there's anything positive that came out of all this, in addition to that, the, the, the previous lesson that was learned, is that the people of Indiana did understand and they did make their voices heard. And Indiana is now moving in a new direction where I think we are going to be able to say not just rhetorically, but legally, 
that it is a, it, it's safe and welcoming to be here. Scott, uh, am I correct that uh, uh, Speaker Bosma has been uh, very uh, open to you on issues such as ethics and and uh, probably some more so than any speaker in my 25 years, he is he has asked for your help. And also on our side, uh, Senator Lannon has been asked by Senator Long on working le- on through legislation together. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I want to include my friend uh, Senator Merritt, who's on with us today, in that as well. I mean, we we have strong disagreements about the direction of Indiana, but there is a degree of functionality there that I think differentiates us from Washington. You know, out there they don't seem to be able to uh, accomplish the things that they do agree on. Uh, in Indiana, we have the types of personal relationships where we can give advice, we can share ideas. And when things affect our institutions as a whole, we're able to work together. And it was very gratifying to work with the other leaders uh, on common sense updates to our ethical standards, not only in the General Assembly, but in the executive branch. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, every lawmaker, regardless of partisan affiliation, uh, can get painted with the same brush. And that affects... uh, the people's faith in our institutions, and th- that's imp- that's important regardless of party. And look, am I thrilled every day about my uh, ability and the ability of my colleagues to uh, change the outcomes of different policy disagreements? Absolutely. Will I continue to be? You bet. Uh, are we able to do some some things on which there's there's strong consensus and disagreement? Yes, we can do that too. I always say the first job of the minority is to help uh, when it's for the good of the state, and that goes along with the, with the thoughtful critiques and providing alternatives, and we are able to accomplish those things. Representative Pilath, I know you have to leave shortly. Um, as you make your own county fair tour this summer, uh, what, what, what are going to be your top talking points with your constituency? Well, you know, wages in the direction of Indiana are going to come first. I mean, we, we have to improve the plight of our middle class and people trying to get into the middle class, because if if we lose them, we're going to lose the fundamental economic engine of our state. We always have to remember it, it, it's about prosperity and the path to getting there. And that means we need to adjust our economic models and some of our underlying economic assumptions because we, we've done a lot for the investor class in Indiana, and investors are important. But now we've got to address the working class and their ability to garner the skills that they're going to need in the future and for the jobs that might be open tomorrow. That's the path to success. And then secondarily, we really need a more pragmatic and non-ideological approach to the way we make policy. We need to stay away from uh, the most divisive issues. We need to ensure that Indiana is going to be a welcoming place, and we need to make sure that our our best and brightest kids, when we, we, we spend the dollars to educate them, that they're going to stay here and create uh, good opportunities for the rest of us. That's how, that's how we get Indiana to be in the place that I think we all want it to be. All right. Hey, we thank you very much for joining us today. We know you have to go. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. That was uh, Representative Scott Pilath, uh, a Democrat from Michigan City, and uh, we thank him for joining us. Senator Jim Merritt is still here with us today, and so is Brandon Smith uh, from the State House Bureau Chief for Indiana Public Broadcasting. If you have questions or comments, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 877 285 
285-9348. That's 285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So a couple other areas. Uh, Senator Merritt, transportation budget. Uh, how how do you feel about that? And, and you know, what's going to happen with I-69? Well, yeah. you know, it's it's interesting you, you mentioned that. We, we uh, in the last couple of years, every biennium, we have placed $100 million into the local budgets regarding roads. And uh, I, I believe that uh, our, our INDOT, our Indiana Department of Transportation, will now look at all sorts of uh, plans and start uh, proceeding forward with en- um, environmental um, statements impact. or, or impact. plan impact statements and, uh, and, and find out exactly what it means to finish I-69, what it means to uh, possibly uh, make I-69 going north, 37 uh, north of Indianapolis from 465 mm-hmm. workable and, and, and actually be able to traverse it without having so much traffic at 5 o'clock. And, and uh, we're, we are, uh, we've placed a great deal of money into, into INDOT's hands th- regarding this, but uh, we are looking at, at some point, a, a deficit of, of growth there because that the gas uh, taxes are becoming less. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the um, um, the oncoming natural gas vehicles, the oncoming battery uh, super battery type of Tesla, and and we don't have a real sound system right now on how to grade that, and how to uh, because it's a user tax, and how do those vehicles. Uh, Monarch Beverage has natural gas uh, machines in, in their in their delivery trucks, and so which is great. It's it's innovative, but we have to figure out how to tax that. So they the the impact they have on the highways uh, has to be measured and, and paid for. It has to be fair, and so we're 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 heading towards a situation where we will not have enough money uh, to um, keep up with the growth, keep up with uh, maintenance of our highways. You're 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 going to end up spoiling the story that I wrote for Monday morning here. Um, <laughs> Speaker Bosman mentioned uh, post session that if he had one disappointment, it was that not putting more money into infrastructure, things had to be cut. As Senator Merritt said, they did increase the money two years ago, and that increase was kept uh, the same, but we didn't go any further than that. But a big wrinkle in not being able to do that was. We don't know what the future is quite yet. We know we, we see a lot of things out there, but we don't know how to make it all work together yet. And there's going to be a huge, uh, what's expected to be a really um, a huge report coming from INDOT this summer, the, looking like August, uh, that's supposed to be, here's what we need to do in the future in terms of road maintenance and, and things like uh, widening I-65 and I-70 and I-69 mm-hmm. and all that. So what are our needs? And how are we supposed to get there? Funding sources. He talked about how do you how do you fairly tax um, uh, natural gas, alternative vehicles, that sort of thing. Is it you know Ed Soliday, the the chair of the House uh, Roads Committee, uh, he likes to hold the specter of of what he calls Soliday boxes out there, which is literally a box you put in your car that tells you how many miles you traveled, and that's how the tax you pay would be determined. Now I don't think a lot of people are very happy about that, so he likes to hang it over their heads to force them to come up with something else, uh, but. That's going to be a, a – Speaker Bosma, Senator Long, I think the next two sessions, so not just next year but the next budget session too, if this was the education session, those are going to be the infrastructure sections. There are – I mean, unbel- I mean, the, the infrastructure is such a key to Indiana's economic health 
um, the crossroads of America, as we often like to say. And if that's the case, we're going to have to figure out how to build it better, maintain what we've got, and and pay for all of that. And that's going to be really hard to tackle, but that's going to be the next couple of years at least. Mm-hmm. Senator Merritt, those mm-hmm. are all very traditional forms of, of transportation that we're talking about so far. Uh, what about going forward? Do you see any motivation or, or um, uh, excitement about increasing public transportation for the state? I'm thinking of light rail, that sort of thing. Yes. You know, <clears throat> we went through a couple sessions recently with the mass transit uh, proposal from, from really from city of Annapolis all the way up to Hamlin County mm-hmm. as being just the start. And hopefully uh, uh, circling Indianapolis and, and, and reaching out. Uh, I, I believe that we need to talk about uh, a, um, some sort of uh, rail system in downtown Indianapolis. You, you just look at it, and you're at IEPY, and you have a class, or you have you have some, an internship down in Lilly. It'd be nice that you could get on some sort of circular and get down to Lilly rather than drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, um, the Hoosier State from you know, there was talk about getting a bus and, and busing uh, uh, individuals from Bloomington to Indianapolis, and then and then uh, then on to Lafayette, and and they can they can ride a train up to Chicago, uh, and that's still a possible. The Hoosier State is on a is on life support, but um, I'm hopeful that we can we can find that find a way to for you to get from Indianapolis to Chicago by rail. And uh, it'd be nice to get from Bloomington to Indianapolis by rail. Uh, but um, uh, you just put your finger on something I think we're going to be talking a lot about on how to move people and, and how to move them in, in, a, in a quick, uh, inexpensive way. And, and uh, we, all, we all know some, um, a lot of Hoosiers feel as though uh, the part of their culture is their car. And it's, it's, it's breaking that habit or breaking that mm-hmm. idea. And the more we grow, more people come in the state who are interested in mass transit and want a good bus system in Indianapolis and elsewhere, Carmel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think more pressure is going to be on us to find ways to move people without cars. I, I grew up in Chicago, which obviously has a robust uh, public uh, mass transit system, and that, that's how I got around the city. I, I lived uh, on the northwest side, and I took the blue line downtown when I had to work downtown uh, one summer. I mean, it was just really easy, and there there isn't the same sort of thing in Indianapolis or really anywhere around the state. And that and that, I didn't have a car at the time, and you know, I would have had to drive my parents, and that would have been inconvenient for them, so it's just less stress on the road. Um, uh, the, on the Hoosier State line, um, there is a, a lot more optimism about where that's going. It seems like the state and the federal government have, have uh, are getting closer and closer to a final deal on that, how that line will move forward. And there is um, language in the budget that will make sure that there will be money from the state for the Hoosier State line uh, in the future. The the, the, uh, the money uh, that has been promised can be found by NDOT or uh, if we have this amnesty program, which will produce $84 million for the regional cities. I really believe when Leader PLAF was talking about the income, I'm, I'm worried about uh, small-town Indiana. I'm worried about places like Jasper and Bedford and Bloomington and places like that that uh, people like living in small towns. They like it, and it's, it's safe, and, it, and they feel good. We have got to find ways to make sure that people feel like they can, they can drive to Indianapolis work but be in Indianapolis or 
be in Indianapolis and maybe possibly go to Martinsville to work. And, 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 and all of Indiana has to prosper. And so uh, having having um, a, a, a good transportation system is, is, is a positive, but also uh, pushing the idea of uh, of regional cities. What 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 are the regional cities raising eighty four million dollars for that program through an amnesty program? But also on top of that, six million dollars would go towards uh, would go towards the um, Hoosier State. Okay, and it's interesting to see how all this dovetails. Um, uh, 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 in terms of the regional cities initiative, something Senator Long has talked about is that will be used in a lot of ways to kickstart regional, what are called regional development authorities, so these groups of, of cities that come together and, and try to find solutions for their area. We just saw in this past budget money for the Northwest Indiana Regional Development Authority, and they're using it to build uh, what they call the South Shoreline, a new rail line exactly. up there. That's So we're talking about dovetailing now. That's a transportation solution. That's an economic solution, uh-huh. and it all comes together. Uh-huh. Before we leave this, I just want to go back to just sort of a, a basic overview of the Regional Cities Initiative. I mean, what yeah, what what exactly will it do? What are the kinds of things it can do? Well, it's kind of a competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, in the beginning, uh, the Pence administration wanted $84 million and to hang it out in front. I think there are probably eight regions in Indiana, eight or nine regions, and they would select two or three that had the best ideas on how they can grow their areas. And you, you would pick two different two different uh, population areas, uh, for instance, with Terre Haute and, and something that would be swirling at Brazil or, or something uh, around that, that area. And they would put together a plan where they would come up with uh, capital projects and, and, and lure um, industry there and, and, uh, and, and, and corporations there. It, 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 it not only preserves uh, small town Indiana, but it allows it to grow. And it also, it kickstarts, and Senator Long is correct, it kickstarts talking with your neighbors and trying to find ways to, uh, to work. And, and Brandon's right, the RDA up in Northwest Indiana that that that's a perfect example, and and uh, I think uh, I think Mitch Daniels probably was up in as governor was up in Gary in Northwest Indiana probably forty times in eight years. He spent a lot of time because we all see the possibilities there, and so uh, you talk about the Allen County area, and and, and they can go together. Indianapolis has has a well known. Uh, working relationship with the eight donut counties. So there are a lot of places, Bloomington included, that, that can compete against other regions and, uh, and, and come home with, what, $21 million for, uh, to grow. And that, this is outside the stellar community program. And uh, Senator Merritt mentioned this a little earlier, there, that, that this was the governor's initiative, and, and it really wasn't, no, I wouldn't say not well-received, but that, that there was a lot of, uh, I think, uh, lawmakers didn't know a lot about about the program initially, it wasn't very well explained, and there wasn't really much money put towards it in either the House or Senate budget. And it ended up with the full $84 million of funding, but not out of general fund money. As Senator mentioned, um, it's a tax amnesty program. We did this uh, 10 years ago back in 2005 and collected well over $200 million. I think it was 270 something million. Now that was a tax amnesty program that went all the way back to the 70s. So this one won't bring in that kind of money because it's only over 10 years. But if you owe back taxes, um, you can pay them and you don't get a penalty, you don't get a fee, you just have to pay what you owe. And that encourages people to get out from that debt mm-hmm. and, and finish it off and get out from under the state's thumb uh, in, that, in that area. And 
that raises, and they're hoping it it will raise much more than eighty four well, million. You know, it's interesting, Brandon, because we were we were our our gas back then was sixty five million, ends up almost three hundred million dollars, wow. and uh, I, I until just recently I thought it was only one hundred sixty five million, but it's more towards three hundred million dollars that it raised. We have two more minutes to go, and I want to talk about energy policy a little okay. bit. So, um, you know, that was one of the big debates during the session. One of the big discussions was about, you know, what we're going to do with energy efficiency. And I just – I guess I want to ask a very basic question. That is, are we better off and how are we better off with what has been passed this year than we were with the old Energize Indiana plan that was okay. discontinued? You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked that question because there were two bills. One that was Senate Bill 412 and the other one was 1320. And 1320 never made it out of the House of Representatives. But I still got calls until the last day wanting to kill that bill. I never saw that bill as chairman of the Utility Committee. So uh, <clears throat> that had no way of – and it had to do with, uh, with uh, making the alternative en- energy industry uh, aligned with the utility industry. And, uh, and we could talk more about that another time. But energy efficiency. A, a year ago, a, a year ago, I got I was able to get an energy audit in my home, mm-hmm. and they came in and, and they, they they replaced twenty light bulbs and they wrapped a pipe. I don't believe that my neighbor who doesn't want those light bulbs doesn't want somebody in my, in their home from an, an energy company or anywhere else. But I don't believe they, that my neighbor ought to have to pay for my energy audit. And so that's socializing over the base. What we did was we, we, we didn't have the third party uh, that was out of Atlanta. We took Energize Indiana. And what we did was we had the utilities come in and say, this is what works with our company because we're different. And the IUC has, has final arbiter. They governed that uh, the, the energy efficiency programs were good. They're almost identical to what they were doing. So Right now, I believe that we have an energy efficiency program in Indiana. We still have to work on all above energy program in this state. Okay, very good. That's right under a minute. I appreciate <laughs> it. I, we, we could talk for a long time about what went on in this session, but we are out of time now. So I really want to thank Senator Jim Merritt for being here with us. So we always enjoy having you down here to Bloomington. Thank you, um, and also Brandon Smith, always good to see you here in Bloomington, too. Great to be here. For Mary Catherine Carmichael and our producer, Lacey Scarmana and Alex McCall, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.